Hello, amazing humans, and welcome to What's the Scoop on Scroop, an inclusive interfaith podcast that explores the intersection between faith and OCD. I'm your host, Reverend Katie O'Dunn, an ordained minister and interfaith chaplain who navigates OCD personally and supports folks on the scrupulosity journey each and every day. OCD loves to attack and twist the things most important to each person. I tend to see different subtypes of OCD as nasty artificial flavors of the same gross ice cream, with scrupulosity as a particularly icky flavor, where OCD latches on to morality, faith, religion, and spiritual practices. I'm so glad you're here as we focus on this particular gross scoop of ice cream. Diving into different perspectives on faith, OCD, scrupulosity, and even taboo intrusive thoughts in faith communities, while always focusing on creating a safe space for diversity and uniquely beautiful experiences. And the reality that faith and mental health can work together in treatment. Let's come together, let's support one another, and begin to curiously ask the question, what's the scoop on scoop? Hello, hello, hello. We are so excited to have you here today for a very special Q&A and interview episode with Noah Tile. Noah is a registered psychotherapist, an academic coach, a rabbi, and co-founder of a Canadian student mental health company called Resolve. Resolve is a low-cost student-focused therapy platform that provides integrative support for mental health, academic success, and personal growth. The platform also offers educational and social-emotional learning tools while building community through its support groups for students, parents, and educators. In private practice, Noah specializes in the treatment of OCD and ADHD. And in addition, Noah is passionate about integrating spirituality with mental health and is a part of the International OCD Foundation's Faith and OCD Task Force to create a positive change, working alongside both Jewish and non-Jewish faith leaders and practitioners across the world. So Noah, we are so excited to have you here today on What's the Scoop on Scroop, and um, we'd love to just start by asking you to tell us a little bit more about your background, about your passion for this work. I I'm even curious about your journey to become a rabbi and also a psychotherapist and how all of this intersects for you. Thank you so much for, for having me on here. I'm very excited to try to contribute a little bit to the important conversation about what is the scoop on Scroop. Um, I, I, a couple of reasons why I got into this field. One of them that I really think is important for me to pay attention to is other people kind of signposts or guideposts along the way, people that, uh, gave me feedback in terms of how they saw me as a person. Uh, many times I'd have conversations when I was younger with camp counselors when I was nine years old, and I'd be asking them things not about like, you know, when are we going to raid the tuck shop, which is where they keep the candy or like, you know, uh, I want to, um, you know, play a water fight game, a water gun game. Not that I wasn't having fun as a young person. I definitely was. But I talked about things like looking at the stars and wondering what does that mean or what's the life of ants like and what is this world about? When I was like eight years old, nine years old, my counselors looked at me in a way like I was looking for deep things, um, which is kind of strange. 
I guess, but I'm, I know that there are people like that. And that kind of relationship with people about being a symbol for meaningful conversation, in-depth conversation, conversations about things that were really important uh, was something that people looked at me for and looked at me to. Um, when I was uh, about, I always grew up in a very traditional Jewish home. I was not uh, in the same, um, I guess, level of observance as I am now, but I was always very connected. But when I was about 18 to 20 years old, um, I went through like a little phase of being not really connected to spirituality at all. Um, I look back, I was still in a deep search for meaning and connection, but I was in a different world. I was in the first year of university, more interested in the socializing and meeting people and not thinking about those questions, you know, school and all these things and not really connected to my spirit or to my soul as much. Um, but around that time, I watched a movie. The movie was called Inception. Uh, Inception is like this trippy movie about dreams and just like, what are dreams? What do they mean? Uh, it really, like, I don't know why, because I was so young, I couldn't articulate it. I was like 19 years old. I was like crying. It wasn't that it was so meaningful, but something about dreams and like consciousness and reality really like hit me that like there's more to this world. And then I ended up in a conversation with a very close friend of mine who got into like out of body experiences and all sorts of other things. And it just immediately created an awakening in me where um, I started getting into meditation and, and my mindfulness type stuff. And within a matter of um, months, I was right back into Jewish text, really into the mysticism, Kabbalah, uh, Jewish spirituality. Um, and that is both like a very rich tradition. It's also been popularized in the mainstream world a, a little bit through people like Madonna, but that's a whole other discussion about how, you know, what's its connection to Judaism. Sometimes it's not so connected, but the bottom line is, is that I was really, I just kind of woke up. I don't know how to explain it other than that. And all of the previous conversations that I used to have with people when I was younger, all this part of identity that people would come to me for their issues and concerns and look at me in this kind of way. Once I started getting into Jewish texts and Jewish spirituality um, and the role of the rabbi as defined by one of the great rabbis of the 19th, 20th century, I believe the late 19th century, said that the job of the rabbi is actually to help people that are suffering, to help relieve suffering. Mm -hmm. So there's different types of rabbis, but I actually look at myself as that's my job. And even as a psychotherapist, I'm still a rabbi, even though I'm a registered psychotherapist and I do a lot of OCD treatment that isn't about religion. Um, my passion for helping people get better and improve their life um, is what I do. And so I am a rabbi. I, I did get a smicha. I did an ordination because I did a lot of chaplaincy work. And uh, unfortunately, um, in the wider uh, faith world, the chaplaincy programs are not very Jewish oriented. Um, so they don't have a lot of good infrastructure. So I just wanted to do my own master's training. And at the same time, I got really into uh, doing mental health therapy. I got into my master's. I was doing a lot of coaching. And so that's kind of what interests me, mostly just wanting to help people and relieve suffering. Um, and uh, and I feel it's a calling. I do feel like I have a calling. Um, and I don't mean that in like, I'm a special sense. I don't really think that way. I just mean that the job that I think I have um, is very suited to my personality, the time period that I'm in. And it's very important to me to be connected, not just to the Jewish community, but to the wider world as a Jew. Um, 
I, I'm guided by the words of Rabbi Sachs, who of blessed memory, who was the chief rabbi of England, who said that where what we want meets what needs to be done, that's what's, that is where what God wants us to be. And so I feel that. I really feel that. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually so excited to hear about all of that because I didn't know really what led you to this and even uh, for you, what it what it means to serve as a rabbi and support people in the midst of their suffering. And I think you have such a unique expertise in that you're able to bring those faith components in with you when you are doing psychotherapy with someone. And uh, that can be separate or combined. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit more today. Um, very neat. And I mean, I wonder for you, so how did we get from there to, I, I know you said you started to do master's work on your own, but how did you get into then the treatment of OCD and what does that look like for you now? Yeah. So a couple of things. Number one is I definitely had a lot of struggles with certain intrusive thoughts that were religious related. Um, when I was younger, I worried about deep questions and safety and, and God, my relationship with faith. I definitely had a lot of deep questions and I was, a, I'm a seeker. I'm a searcher. I was looking. And so I had a little bit of a background on OCD because of intrusive thoughts related to spirituality, but really, um, the way that I got into it is that I am a very coach oriented therapist. I love helping, not that there's different, there's so many ways to help people. I love helping people make the changes they need to make and then learn to deal with what comes up after they change. So I don't wait. Often I jump into exposures. I hope this is ethical. I don't know. I think it is, but it doesn't take me 10 sessions. It takes me probably by the fourth session, we're already t testing the waters. I want to help people get better. When I started to learn about exposure yeah. therapy um, as a modality um, later on, uh, as I got older and I started like, that was the, one of the first, it's, it's, this, it's really gamified. I don't mean to reduce it to a game, but you are helping people with a very real measurable thing. And I don't mean to reduce people's problems just to this, but um, I started with coaching and coaching is very practical. You get to help people like, get organized, deal with their executive function challenges. I loved helping people improve and them seeing themselves change and their perspective on themselves change, not through changing their thoughts so much or, or anything, but changing how they live, uh, the quality of life that they live that creates so much transformation. That's very aligned with my religious philosophy and Jewish law that we just do our best to do what we need to do and hope that our emotions connect and calibrate to what doing what's right. Um, so when I learned about exposure therapy as also being like really, really practical and people can get better and you can create movement and change with people, um, I wanted to experiment with that. So I got into it in grad school a lot more. Um, and then I just decided to start directing my attention to these subspecialties, OCD and ADHD, and said, I just want to focus on this. I do a lot of other things too, of course, but those are my areas. and. Um, I just love that you can get better. I, I think that that's so meaningful because a lot of mental health challenges are so hard. Um, and OCD is mm. extremely hard, but people can change. Mm. I, I love, I, I so agree. And there's something really cool about treatment. And we'll talk a little bit more about that today. But there there really is, I mean, that people really can get better. And I mean, I saw that in, in my own life that it, it 
treatment really was effective and there can be different challenges, I know, for different individuals, but I think it's really neat that you can see really specific measurable improvement with exposure and response prevention when it comes to scrupulosity or any subtype of OCD. And I know working on the faith side, I see folks navigating religious group who can't leave their house that then a few months later are living a full life and able to engage in their faith practices. And it's kind of, it's a really cool thing. It's a really cool thing. And also Katie, I think what's for me, maybe this is, on the, on the, a little bit below the surface, but not really now that I've, that I've thought about it over time. Um, working with people with OCD, you're actually working on their theology of life. Uh, you're, you're, you are dealing with questions about cognition. What do thoughts mean? What are the power of thoughts? What are the power of words? Metacognition, meta beliefs about, you know, thought action fusion issues, which is the idea, like, our thoughts equated with actions. You are actually helping people through OCD therapy construct a really healthy life philosophy that's theological. Like it's, it's it can be about deep things about believing about God, the world, reality, thoughts, consciousness. It's it's like this blend of world construction with actions to face your fears. And I just want to be a part of that for, with people. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I always love how you bring that together. And that's actually a lot of what I want to talk about today. I'm curious. I I always like to go back to the basics with folks first and say, hey, how would you define OCD? And I know we've we've done this together and in different platforms before, but I'd love to hear for you how you define OCD, um, whether it's scrupulosity or any other subtype and how OCD, how we might connect that to faith, whether it's through someone's experience or through the treatment. For sure. So I hope to just do the Coles notes in the way that I talk about it with most most clients. I th- again, I'm always sensitive, Katie, because um, I know that there are people that know a million times more than me that might listen to it, and and so I hope I hope mm. if I say something wrong, they can correct me. But I don't like the word obsession. I don't think it represents what's going on. Uh, it, it, we use the word obsessive in. Uh, cultural sense very differently than we do with OCD. I use the word intru- intrusion because to me it encompasses more. And, and OCD is simply the obsession, which I call the intrusion, is unwanted intrusive images, thoughts, sensations, bodily sensations, physiological response, all sorts of uh, um, experiences, both that happen internally with your with with your body and as well, you know, in your thoughts in your brain. Uh, and and I guess in your emotion and felt sense of emotion that literally come into your awareness, um, usually triggered by something in the environment or um, um, a physiological sensation can be a trigger. Sometimes an, a thought can be a trigger. But once you're triggered, you have all the, a feeling of being intruded. Something is intruding upon you, which is usually disturbing. And it's image-based, thought-based, feeling-based, physiological feeling-based. I look at it as one entity and I call it an intrusion. Um, cause it's not something you're obsessing about obsessing. When people say I'm obsessing, they're actually compulsing, which is so confusing culturally. When people say, Oh, that you're obsessing about that. <laughs> no, you had an obsession and now you're compulsing. That's why I don't like the language. And that's a PR thing for OCD. Um, obsession is just the intrusion. It lasts about half a second to two seconds to three seconds. It lasts until there's a choice. And for many people, there's no choice. It goes right from intrusion 
to an action. The action is a behavior that you do to ward off the danger that you think the intrusions created or to feel better or to undo something that the effect of that intrusion created. The compulsion is simply the ritual that you've developed in life to deal with the difficulties of the intrusions. And sometimes, and the reason I say ritual is because I want to include things like avoidance. That's a ritual. I'm, I'm, I'm triggered. And I just think the compulsion is too narrow too. Like it's, it's a ritual is such an, isn't that interesting that the, where else are rituals used in a religious context, religion. <laughs> religion and many people, this is so funny about OCD and sad and hard and difficult and unbelievably challenging is these things are, are very ritualistic, but it's the context of why people do them. So, but they become ritual, they become rigid three times this, two times that, but basically we have intrusions and then we have the responses, which are rituals. And the job of my job amongst many things, there's so many other parts to OCD. There's so many other dimensions to being a therapist, but the core of my work is I want to expose people to their intrusions and I want them to learn to relate differently and engage differently or not engage with their rituals. And that's, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I, and you can keep it. I was just going to say, I love that so much because I spend so much time talking with folks about the difference between an obsession and a compulsion, especially when we're talking about an intrusive thought and then rumination. And I actually love breaking it down and saying, okay, obsession, a lot of times we're using that, like you said, when we're obsessing, it's like we're actually talking about a compulsion, but it really is just this intrusive thought, image, experience. I love that. And I think you should rebrand OCD for all of us. <laughs> it should be called intrusive ritual disorder. So I... RT, no, IRD, sorry, IRD, RID, ritual, yeah, whatever it is, it's not going to happen. Oh, ritual, yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, We're not going to change it, but on a practical level, when communicating (laughs) with people in therapy, why do I have to use those terms? I do. I still say them just because people know, but, but yeah, no one is, when they say they're obsessing, they're not having an obsession. They're by that point, if you're obsessing about something, you're, you're ruminating, which is a mental compulsion. And so um, that's my, my, my take on it. Um, the, the way that it, of course, manifests in faith at times is the intrusive, intrusive content. The intrusions in terms of content could be related to faith uh, directly about your relationship with God or uh, your relationship with other worlds or all sorts of things about morality and being a good person. but even for themes in OCD, such as uh, violent intrusive thoughts that have nothing to do with religion. Someone could have an intrusive thought um, around children that they want to kill them when they see them. And so they avoid children, even though there's no religious content there. How hard is, how can someone live a functional life of spirituality and faith when they believe that they're like basically a child murderer? right? Mm-hmm. Um, that leads to sin, to feelings of being a sinner, feelings of being guilty um, and a bad person. And so even then where there's no uh, content about the intrusions that are directly religious, religion and belief about yourself and how others see you and how you are seen in the eyes of God or, or faith are always coming up. Hmm. 
I love that you pull that into because I think um, uh, often folks are really surprised. And I shared my my own story on the last two episodes of what that looked like. But navigating ministry, I really didn't have particular with my own OCD journey, intrusive thoughts that related very heavily to religion. But I did have a lot of really intense harm themes. And it impacted the way that I saw myself as a minister, the way that I saw myself as a faith leader, as a spiritual leader, because of that guilt, shame. How could I possibly have these intrusive thoughts and still be a person of God? What does this look like? And the way that you just articulated that, I think especially because with OCD, it's not about the content. It very much is taking over the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see ourselves as children of God. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's an awful way to it's just it's hard to thrive it's hard to to, and also there's another dimension to it which is like someone's god forbid suffering in such a way that it also leads to why is this happening to me and all those you know that yeah that line of it either way faith the reason why we've expanded to or tried to with the international ocd foundation about faith and mental health is that we want to move it away from just just Scroop because we know that Scroop is a huge part of it. And I'm working with that and so many people are working with that. But anybody that's working with anybody that has a, a sense of faith, you know, really should broker that diversity and try to learn about how it impacts their their relationship with, with spirituality. Because for so many people, that's their first line of, of like protective barrier to like or protective layer. Um, yeah. And you've been such a huge part of that with RIOCDF faith and OCD work and really having a voice for, yes, group is important, but it's not just about that. There's, there's so much more than that with OCD. Um, And I'd love to go a little bit further into, you started to mention the treatment for OCD. I would love to hear a little bit, we mentioned the exposures, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about ERP, but also how that might relate to faith, where faith can come in as a part of that process. Yeah, I think that this is a tension that I would say is a generational, probably modern mental health, modern psychology, I guess, is I think it's maybe I'm wrong. I don't know for sure, but I think it's like 100, 120 years old, we, the way we like typify psychology, like with Freud, then as a discipline and as a field, it's been a very short time. Um, and to burst, just to burst people's bubbles, we didn't invent mental health a hundred years ago. We've been thinking about problems of suffering, meaning how to face fears, how to deal with anxiety. We might not have called it the same words. We've been thinking about happiness, yeah. the philosophers, the the spiritual leaders. We have. It's not the ownership of mental health, and why does that matter? So something yeah. like exposure therapy, first of all, so thankful that there's been so much research into that, and that we know that it helps people, and that it, it is a modern technology of of supporting people with OCD, let's let's call it. It's also evolving. We know that it's growing into the idea of inhibitory learning where people are learning to face their fears, but they're not necessarily expecting that they're going to go away. We're not trying to change our our emotions per se. We're trying to regulate ourselves and face what what scares us. But that's a whole other area, but it's growing. And I love that there's research and I'm thankful. But they didn't it started before. Um, go into your own tradition. And you will find discussions about taking a leap of faith and facing your fears. You know, um, you know, we say things like in in the Psalms, "Lo ira rakia I don't fear for evil, for you are with me. The, the, 
it's been going on for a long time, this idea that we are afraid of things and we develop the courage to face them. And that is what exposure therapy is. And so just in and of itself, it's already a pretty spiritual idea. Um, Rabbi Sachs calls, says that faith is not certainty, but the courage to live with uncertainty. To me, that's literally exposure therapy. Maybe he didn't mean it that in that exact context. But so for me, ERP is always an immensely spiritual journey because you are practicing your brain, unfortunately, which is so sad and absolutely awful, is your brain, as well as the normal physiological responses that, that get generated, as well as the emotions that come up, as well as thoughts and imaginations, have been hijacked. Usually those are tools used when there's real threats in the environment. If you're walking on the street and all of a sudden, you know, you see, um, uh, you know, let's say you're walking on a, on, a, on a street corner and all of a sudden, God forbid, you see like a, something falling from the sky from, or from a top of a building, a piece of shard or a big, I don't know, building material. You better run. You better deal with it. You better, fa- you better get away. You've got to react. Um, and then maybe that's even a bad example. But the bottom line is that our brain and our body knows how to detect fears and deal with them and avoid pain and get, safe, get to safety. With OCD, unfortunately, people develop intrusions about, generally speaking, either totally irrational things or unrealistic things. And in OCD therapy, sometimes you do do cognitive therapy and you say, these aren't realistic. The chances are one in a million, et cetera, logic. But then you also just say, like, I'm willing to take that chance and you face the fear. But your brain is convincing you in the moment that this is the scariest thing, the most dangerous thing. You have to go against your body's instincts and have trust that it's not real and that it's real emotion that's coming up, but that the threat isn't really there. And your job is to, to not give into it. To me, that's an immensely spiritual idea that I have to take faith. And you can, if you have faith in God, you say, I know God wants me to get better from this illness. This is the therapy that I can do to get better. And my job is to allow my brain to convince me what we call in, you know, these impulses in our brain, uh, we call them in Judaism, like the Yetzirah, like this impulse, you know, these fears to, to, to come up and to trust in God that we don't need to respond to that. And if we don't, it will diminish and it will go away eventually. Maybe we hope so. What a, what a spiritual thing. I, I, it's, a, it's a spiritual practice. Faith, this ERP is just the practicing applying faith, faith in your clergy who might you might be working with mm-hmm. faith in the therapist faith in the world faith in god that this is what i'm going to do and i'm going to be okay and i'm going to survive and i'm going to manage my my mental health and anxiety very spiritual mm-hmm. to me even when it's the most secular case oh 10,000% i was just i i talk often and this uh, when i specific i'll speak to a lot of different religious communities about ocd and specifically scrupulosity but particularly when i go to um to christian houses of worship i'll actually talk about the trinity of faith and i'll say yep we all need to have faith in in god faith in our treatment and faith in ourselves like that is the trinity that we really need to live into as as a part of this treatment process um But there is something that's so spiritual, like you said, across traditions. And even if someone doesn't see themselves as as religious or spiritual about taking this leap of faith um, through treatment, because it's it's really tough and it feels really scary. And I think what you're talking about, there's also something really beautiful about it because it, it and I'm not sure if you see this. I often see individuals who feel like 
treatment is in opposition to faith because they've been raised to believe that faith means certainty when faith doesn't necessarily mean certainty. And I wonder how you reconcile that with individuals that you work with. Yeah, it's it's so I I'm I think I'm maybe I don't know if it's I'm overly um optimistic or or whatnot, but I I don't even know where the resistance where is the resistance coming from. So maybe I'll address some of the resistance. So I think that people I work with exposure therapy from a very flexible framework. Um and so what that means is 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 like no one is ever gonna do an exposure that goes against their core values. So for I'll give you an example. If someone is um okay. Okay, for 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 Jewish kosher laws, there might be an idea, there's ideas to not eat milk and meat together, to not eat pork together, to not eat pork or something, like you know, examples like that. If someone is having intrusive thoughts that like they can't be in a room with um uh let's say they can't be in a room where there's pork because when they're getting a room with pork, they develop a temptation to eat the pork and they think that that makes them terrible and blah, 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 blah. So we're never going to do something like, oh, and now you're going to eat the pork so that you become more comfortable around pork. I'm just giving a really terrible example. You never do anything against your values. So you've got to work with the framework. Another example, some people with relationship OCD, this might be a bit more nuanced. Someone has intrusive thoughts about if they're in a really committed and loving relationship, but when they see an attractive woman on the street, they might have, you know, sexual thoughts about them that they can't control. And then they're really anxious about that. And they feel they need to confess to their partner, this really relationship OCD issue. If they're not comfortable, like looking at illicit images of, uh, or like looking up, checking out women as an expo, like, first of all, I don't even think that that's what you need to do. You don't need to like do things against your values. You might just want to, yes expose yourself, go on the street. And if you see a woman there, hello, how are you? You be friendly and your brain tries to convince you, oh, you want them or you just smiled at them because you want them to be attracted to you. And you'd learn to deal with that. But you never push people's envelopes and say, you need to like watch a, uh, 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 you know, where someone's walking around in a certain way that you're not comfortable based on your religious values to look at. You're never going against your values. You're only working with the values to become more flexible based on what your needs are in life. Um, so this whole, I don't, I'm not even sure what the, um, this idea that faith about faith and certainty, I never really encountered that exactly. Um, most of the cl clinicians and cl the clergy that I've spoken to are super, they get it. And they're like, wow, what a great therapy. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you have not had that experience. Can we flip the switch? And can you just tell us some of your what happened? What's happened for you? Yeah, it, it's really, you know, so I've, my work is across different faith traditions with scrupulosity. I kind of come on and consult and work as a chaplain on different cases. So I see so many different beliefs. And um, it, it's it, the, actually, interestingly enough, you know, and we're talking some today about, about Judaism and the work you do. I haven't seen this really within Jewish communities. It's primarily been um, some in Christian communities that tend to view scripture as, as a little bit more inerrant. And I work with a lot of people who have navigated both scrupulosity, but have also navigated some really adverse religious experiences where they've grown up being told from the pulpit that if they do not have absolute certainty in the existence of God in 
their salvation that something horrible will happen. And it kind of this, it kind of mirrors what they experience with their OCD. And then there's also this even greater fear of leaning into uncertainty around treatment because it feels like it opposes faith if they say remotely that they are not certain about something that they believe. That makes sense. That's a lot of weight. That's a lot of, it's a lot of weight, so much pressure to believe. And there's also a difference between having belief and then having intrusive thoughts. Yes. Um, and I want to differentiate that. So first of all, I want to normalize that people have religious questions. You know, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I believe in the Torah being the word of Hashem. I, I have, you know, strong beliefs about things, of course. But there's a difference between belief questions and intrusive thoughts. You can believe and have intrusive thoughts. And if you go to your faith leader and you say, I'm having thoughts and, and doubts about these things. First of all, hopefully as a good faith, they're going to be able to normalize and meet, meet you where you yes. are and try to support you. But from an OCD standpoint, you would want to be clear that this person is not suffering from directly their faith. They're suffering from the intrusive thoughts about their faith. And in that way, so it could be the same. That's why it's so tricky. Sometimes it could be the same presenting issue. Someone goes to their rabbi, their, cl their clergy member and says, I'm having these thoughts. But if it's OCD, it's that they really do believe it, but their brain is convincing them nonstop to have doubt or oh, had a bad thought there, had a doubt there. And then the, hopefully the clergy can say, we got to expose ourselves to this. And you're not going to expose yourself to, to hearsay. You don't need to like say, you need to expose yourself to don't believe, don't believe, don't believe, or, or the world is, you don't, it's not to need to be like that, but you can expose yourself to the triggers. Maybe you get triggered every time you read the Bible, you read the Torah, you, you read it. You're reading the, this verse in Genesis and you see it and you get triggered. Read it. Let the thoughts come up and convince you that you're not a believer or whatever and just learn to, that they're there and then come back and focus your attention back with your senses into your life. But I can see how that can get pretty messy in certain situations. It can. And, you know, we'll talk more in some later episodes of the podcast about both religious trauma and adverse religious experiences, because it can be it can be really tricky. And I work on on some cases where it's really it's really tough because someone will be in treatment and they'll be told by their faith leader that their treatment is a sin because leaning into uncertainty is a sin. Um, and I hear that pretty frequently and um, it's really, it's really tough. And I don't, in working with someone, want to oppose their faith leader or what has been so significant to them. But I also want them to be able to lean into the treatment that can help them reclaim the life that God has created them to live. Yeah. And I hope, I hope that that comes, I'm convinced and maybe I'm wrong, Katie, but I'm convinced that if you had a half an hour to explain what is going on there that they would understand and they would support you. I, I so I, I would say I have 80% of the time. Yes. Yeah. I would say 80% of the time. Yes. I've actually been so pleasantly surprised. That's half of what I do is sit down with individuals, faith leaders and help them figure out how to support too. There are sometimes that that's not the case, but I, I tend to think and not to say this is a whole different issue, but when I'm talking to someone, it tends to be more about their issue than anything else and their discomfort with being uncomfortable or their lack of certainty about what it means to be uncertain and their own issue of faith than the actual person that they're working with. Right. 
Um, so that's a, that's a wider conversation, but, um, it's, it's interesting, but to your point, yes, generally I have had really, really positive experiences where I think most faith leaders really want, um, to support their, their congregants and support individuals in their communities that are in treatment. And, um, the, experiences that I've had that have been less than positive are few and far between. And again, I think it, it tends to be um, more about the own individual's kind of issue as they as they navigate faith. But it's it's generally been a really positive experience. And as far as some of the negative experiences go, um, I think that there are still opportunities for learning. Um, I've, I've had some neat opportunities where I've been working with someone and with a faith leader who didn't fully understand the treatment component, who was worried that it was opposing faith, that then I heard from the faith leader five or six months later saying, hey, I just had somebody else with OCD in my congregation. I actually want to understand this now. And that's that's really cool. So I think a lot of it can also come full circle. For sure. And I also think for, for any um, members of the faith, faith communities listening to this, so there is this ability for us to integrate faith um, and, and make mental health, uh, treatments, uh, opportunities more available and less stigmatizing, of course, and to know that it's really aligned with faith, but then there's the ability to go deeper, which is to use your own faith language to find, um, the parallels between these modern therapies and your own tradition. And that I think you can, you can look and you can find things everywhere. If you want to, you can find stories of people facing fears and, and, and developing courage and, and working through what, what scares them and dealing with, with it. And I, and I think that that's really a cool combination when you're able to do that. Yeah, I, I think, and no, you've heard me talk about this My um, in the last year of my doctorate and looking at um, ERP as a spiritual practice and taking these leaps of faith and using your faith as, as really a part of that process. And you don't know this yet, but I will be reaching out to you in the next six months for more interviews around this from the Jewish side. But it's such an important concept where we really can. It's not just, again, not just about scrupulosity, but using our faith, finding these parallels as we move through treatment. Um, And I know that this is such a key reason that you have recently started something that's really exciting. And I would love for you to share a little bit more about the work that you're doing in the Jewish community and specifically your new support group. Yeah, thank you, Katie. I think um, some of your work has inspired me to want to make sure that that happens. I just want to have a group um, for the Jewish community to be able to come in to talk about OCD, talk about their their concerns, their challenges, their situation, go through tools and opportunities to meet other people in across the Jewish spectrum to be able to feel supported, feel connected. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not really sure why. I, and if 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 somebody's listening to this that actually knows a group, please let me know. There isn't uh, an OCD Jewish peer support or OCD Jewish support group. Um, and I want to make sure that that happens. We had a, a nice 20 to 30 people from the OCD conference on faith and mental health from the Jewish community. And so we're slowly going to start getting that. We're probably going to have one group come out just before the high holidays uh, in the middle of beginning of September. Um, so people who are interested, uh, there'll be a, a, probably a form that I'll share with Kitty might even have the form uh, that we can put into the description. For, so people want to sign up. Uh, they can they can learn about it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of we're really look, this is I think that there's going to be a great al- alliance between uh, especially with OCD, uh, faith and mental health. Uh, I really am hopeful 
uh, that that we're we're onto something much bigger than than this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I will definitely put that into the show notes. I have a feeling that some folks will be listening and be very eager to participate in this with you. Um, so I, I just think I'm so glad that you're doing that. And as far as I know, as well, it doesn't really exist, and and that's been one of the neat things. No, I getting to work with you. I think a lot of what we get to do around faith and OCD, um, it's kind of building from the ground up and and we're getting to start a lot of new things, which I always <laughs> like listeners to hear too. Um, we are not the be all end all of this work and we are also trying to figure it out. So if you are are listening and are thinking, ooh, this is something I'm really passionate about or something that I want to see happening around faith and OCD, um, please reach out and and let us know. And we would love for you to be a part of the leadership around this too. <laughs> Please, please. Uh, I um, maybe we'll just end off, and I'll just share a quick, a quick teaching yeah. um, th- that I think could, could really be be relevant. We say every day. Um, so we say uh, in English, it's you know, here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. It's the declaration of the oneness of God that we say. And in the third paragraph, we talk about this idea that sometimes our eyes and our heart are going to be kind of running after things that are against our values. We're going to be running after, and I don't mean this in the, in the language of like, you know, in a colloquial sense of like sin, but I do look at OCD temptations as not sin, like you're sinning by having OCD or anything remotely like that. But when you give into these desires that aren't connected to your higher self, to your values, to who you really want to be, to your relationship with God, it's like you're disconnecting by listening to the OCD. It's like you're sinning, even though, please don't take my words and say you're it's the opposite. It's not your <laughs> fault. You're not a sinner. And I don't even use that language, but I'm saying there's a practice that we say in the, in the tradition that we say, don't run after your eyes and your heart um, that, that, are, that, are, that are enticing you. What you want to do instead is we look at the, the we call these the tassels, the tzitzit. Mm-hmm. That you're supposed to look at these tzitzit on your garment and remember your values. So what, what I hopefully can encourage people to do is write down the values that you have. Not when you're doing an exposure, when you need to lean into the uncertainty, but throughout the day, write down, this is who I am. These are my values. I know that this is what God wants for me. This is aligned with my higher self to not give in to my OCD. Have it somewhere where you can see it, where you can observe it. We say that we oritemoto, we look at it. Uskartem, we remember and we do the asitem and we do the right thing. And we don't run after our desires. So there's this opportunity we have to tune into our values and not give in to our fears. Um, this is an example for me how I've integrated because I say that the, the Shema prayer, it's twice a day in the morning. You should say it in the morning and the evening. So the morning, evening, I can meditate on the things that I'm that are making me run away from my values. Somebody with struggling with OCD, just reminders to live with your values in a visible sense, in a sense that you can grab on a, on a daily basis. That's not part of exposure. Exposure, you don't do that. It's the, re, it's the that gets into reassurance territory in the exposure, but in daily life to remind yourself about what you care about and why you're doing it is a, is a really important tool. Thank you so much. That is such a beautiful way for us to end and to close and a beautiful note to to close on. Um, so thank you so much for being here. And thank you all for listening to What's the Scoop on Scroop. And we will definitely have Noah back on in the future to continue to, to talk with us about all of these connections between faith and OCD. Thank you so much, Katie. And I just, you know, God willing that this podcast can really help people 
reduce their suffering, find meaning and find community. The last thing I want to say, I'm telling you it's the last thing. I missed the <laughs> conference, but I know that people on that conference, what they feel of the OCD conference, they feel almostly like a spiritual community, a community. <laughs> that is another part of faith that is so important. Find a community. It's a protective layer. We are missing that in our modern world and we're craving it. And that's why when people come together with shared values, it's power, it's lightning in a bottle and it's healing. So that's a plug for getting involved in OCD community and in faith in OCD community. So I hope this podcast contributes to that as much as possible. Okay, Katie, talk soon. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you learned a little more about the scoop on Scroop. I'm sending you so much love wherever you are in the journey. And as always, I encourage you to stick with the ick and keep running towards your values as you move toward the big, beautiful, awesome life you were created to live.